2: Rituals undergird societies, whether religious, civil, or secular, whether public or somewhat secret and hidden from view, ritual is present in all societies. What of the United States, a country with a past rooted in monarchy, which is very ritual-oriented? Well, the ways vestiges from the monarchical past in the United States Shade American society is fascinating when attention is paid and rituals are analyzed and questioned. Why do some of the things people do in society that we carry from generation to generation feel so awkward, sometimes so painful? Why do ritualistic performances from the past continue to be done from generation to generation even when they feel outdated? What about when they feel performative or unnatural? These observations of the awkwardness of sovereign rituals in the United States is the topic of this conversation with Dr. Dana Logan from the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. Logan's book Awkward Rituals, Sensations of Governance in Protestant America tackles a conversation on the sovereign rituals between 1790 and 1850, the space between the American Revolution and the Civil War, when rituals like Freemason initiations, the work of evangelical societies and missionaries, promoted class-based societies while trumpeting egalitarianism. Logan talks about how a ritual becomes a box to check a performance this was a super cool conversation about awkward rituals out now from the University of Chicago Press you can find Dr. Dana Logan on Twitter at pop apologist and I really hope you enjoy our conversation Dr. Dana Logan, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: I'm excited to have you on the show and to learn all about your work and your book that has just come out. Uh, But just to kind of kick us off here, I'm wondering if you can spend a moment and introduce yourself to the audience, however you see fit.
1: Yeah, so um, my name is Dana Logan. I am a professor, an assistant professor at University of North Carolina in Greensboro in the Religious Studies Department. And I'm trained as a historian of American religion, Um, but my PhD is in religious studies. And I consider myself to be someone in dialogue with other people interested in ritual studies. And uh, anything else important about me, I got my my BA at Reed and MPS at Harvard Divinity School. Oh, wonderful. You probably know a lot of my past
2: guests on this podcast. Harvard Divinity School has come up on several occasions here. you know, I'm curious about this academic origin, you know, your backstory about why you came to do the work that you do. And I love asking guests this, and I'm wondering if you can just tell me a little bit about some of your major stepping stones to finding these areas that you study professionally now, what were some of your major turning points along the way?
1: Yeah, So at Reed College, religious studies is a cult, which Hmm. is like, the best version of religious studies where Interesting. Uh, <laughs> where you sort of like you know, have these rituals of induction and you learn Durkheim and Weber and and um like literally you make a, a golden calf and carry it with the with the professors um and I love that version of of religious studies and I try to I try to be a missionary for it um but at Reed College, actually, it was in an art history class that I I, t- I took a class on iconoclasm, and I was introduced to the idea of Protestant iconoclasm, so Protestant hatred of images. Mm. Um, and it was in that context that I first found a book of Shaker vision drawings um, by Sally Promi, which is an incredible book. Um, and that book basically introduces the very important concept that Protestants purport to hate images, but they actually love images. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they have tons of images. Um, and that's that sort of initiated this, uh, I think, career-long interest in Protestants being failed Protestants. Mm. So I wrote an undergraduate thesis on um, Schuller's Drive-In Church in Southern California, which is designed by this incredible modernist architect, um, Richard Neutra. Um, sort of thinking about how mega churches are a particular kind of Protestant architecture. Um, and then I went on to Harvard Divinity School where uh, David Hempton had just come there and I was working with David Hall. And uh, they were also all very into this idea of kind of Protestants failing at being Protestants. Mm-hmm. Or not failing, that's too strong. You know, Protestants having a luscious relationship to the material world. <laughs> despite saying that they didn't
2: (laughs) sure. Yeah. I, I, I feel like I have examples going on in my mind
1: right now for what you may mean. Totally. Um, and then when I went on to Indiana, um, to the religious studies department there, um, I kind of, my my project came out of loving work like web keen, who also is interested in Protestants kind of failing at, at dividing the world between subject and object and Lee Schmidt's work on, um, on American rituals, and he has has so many books that do this, but like, for example, his book on um, Christmas and Easter and Valentine's Day are all about Protestants getting very Catholic in a weird Uh way. Um, And it was at Indiana that I kind of became weirdly obsessed with civil religion and this kind of old school Bella notion of civil religion. And my interpretation of, of civil religion is that what he was really showing is that, this kind of Protestant nation weirdly needs all of these rituals um, in which it tells itself that it's disestablished, that there's no state church, <laughs> but that it's also very moral um, and that rituals were sort of central to that, to that process. Um, so yeah, so I've, I've been really driven by this kind of interest in first Protestant iconoclasm and now Protestant anti-ritualism.
2: Well, and I noticed that when you were describing your time at Reed, you also said rituals of induction. So this is something that I feel like is woven throughout all of your life, it feels like. Does that, you know, did you notice that you said that?
1: Oh, that's so funny. And you're totally right. So I am totally unchurched. I I grew up in a commune outside of Boulder, Colorado. Oh, wow. It was was started by my grandparents who were professors at UC Boulder and like very unethically started a commune with all their graduate students. Amazing. and it wasn't Christian at all. It was like in this very hippie new age context. Sure. And and boy, did I do some embarrassing, um, rituals as a youth? I mean, like I went on a vision quest with people who are not native Americans. Mm. I, I did all kinds of rituals. And so, yeah, I think, I mean, I think like, like, like religious studies and like Americans, I've, I have at points in my life just loved rituals for ritual sake. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I guess that is a lifelong interest. Thanks for, thanks for psychologizing me.
2: <laughs> that was so fascinating. When you said that, I picked up on it right away. And I was really excited by that. Cause I'm looking at your book cover right here and it's like awkward rituals. I'm sitting right here. I was like, she just said rituals of induction about one of her college experiences. That cannot be a coincidence. Yeah. Um. So I'm glad that I dug deeper on that, you know, and your uh career also overlaps a little bit with my hometown, St. Louis, Missouri. And I recently had Charlie McCrary on the podcast to talk about his work that he was, and we talked about his time at Danforth Center. And I'm wondering if you can just like, tell me a little bit about your time there and we you know what that was like
1: for you. Totally. Um, oh my God, it was such a thrill to be at the Danforth Center because as I was telling you, like Lee's work, Lee, Lee Schmidt's work has been really formative for me. And Marie Griffith is like, she was my, you know, when I think about the luminaries of American religion, um, Lori uh, Maffley-Kipp, is there, these are like really big names in American religion. And um, just like Charlie said, when I listened to his interview, they have been doing this really important work of sort of taking what people think is important, which is American religion and politics. Like People think that's the category that matters and then allowing all these scholars to do really interesting things within that. So to work on secularism or in my case, to think about, the ritual structure of civil society, which is not like necessarily what people think of as politics. Mm -hmm. So I I think that they're just, they're doing immensely important work in terms of expanding the kind of work that gets funding.
2: That is absolutely wonderful. I'm glad to hear that. Um,
1: (laughs) So let's talk about some of that
2: work. You have a brand new book, Awkward Rituals, Sensations of Governance in Protestant America from Class 200 the University of Chicago Press. And I want to know, I want us to unpack this title a little bit first and foremost. So I want to talk about, I want to take it in reverse order, ritual, then awkwardness. So I'm wondering if you can tell me about ritual in your view and within the context of the book. What is ritual?
1: Great. Uh, So... I think at this point in religious studies, ritual is very much defined by, or it, the category is sort of owned by Catherine Bell. And I think what she's done is she's uh, created a consensus that ritual is more than religious activity, that it doesn't necessarily just have to be in religion, but it's a kind of activity that is in all kinds of spheres of life, in work, in um, thinking about America, in school, uh, in activism and all kinds of spaces, ritual happens. And the other distinctive thing to me about ritual is that ritual is repetitive, that it kind of continues to try to be somewhat similar to itself over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'm playing in, in my book and in the title, I'm playing with, with that sense of continuity and also with that sense that ritual in America can happen outside of classically understood religious spaces.
2: Okay. I understand. So tell me a little bit about this, like um, the notion of awkwardness and how awkwardness can play into ritual. Cause this is where it gets really interesting for me, which is why I wanted to take it in reverse order.
1: Yeah. So, so going back to Catherine Bell, I mean, I think one of the other sort of general feelings about ritual in both religious studies, and I would actually just say, in like the way people talk about ritual is that ritual feels like home it's the thing that is um it makes you feel like you are part of the culture you are in so that implies some sort of synthesis between the activity you're doing and like your ideas your beliefs your feelings um and i noticed in my own life and then in my historical subjects lives That, in fact, often ritual does not feel like that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Ritual sometimes feels like this weird uh, thing that maybe comes from the past and like you wouldn't necessarily endorse it. If somebody if somebody was like, what are the things you care most about? It wouldn't line up necessarily with all those things you say. Um, And I'm arguing that that sensation of like, I guess I'm doing this, but like I wouldn't like, you know, get up and 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 say this is something I, I love and believe in is a sensation of awkwardness. Mm,
2: I understand. So, you know, what I was thinking, uh, whenever I read stuff that takes place in a very specific historical context, your book is mostly taking place between 1790 and 1850. So I was like, what does this look like to me now? Whenever you were talking about the unnaturalness of all this, I pictured myself in a an academic conference in those chairs sitting for extraordinarily long periods of time, even though my body was screaming at me to do anything else. You know what I mean? So like I was trying to like put myself into the position of some of the things that you were describing within the text to sort of connect with it a little more. And I'm wondering if that resonates with you and if you do the same kind of thing.
1: I sometimes wonder if the entire genesis of this book is actually my experience of academic conferences.
2: Okay, that's hilarious. Because, it's
1: you are. know the feeling of when you go to your first academic conference as an academic baby and you suddenly realize there's all these rules, right? There's yeah. all these ways that they're not just procedure. They're like, oh, you start using this voice when you give your paper and you do your, your ritual of deference to people when you're introducing them at the beginning of the panel um, and, and the way you sit and then the way that people leave halfway through, but like in a very specific way. Yeah, yeah. Um <laughs> these are all conventions of the conference and I and I play with that in in my chapter on the American Bible Society where I call it the conventions of a convention right these are um and 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 I don't think anybody in religious studies is like yes I love that about our conferences those right. are clearly good for us those are all yeah. the things we believe in
2: <laughs> Oh my
1: gosh They're, I love yeah, it Yeah and so and so I'm playing with both the fact that like I think they're a little out of step with what we purport to say we believe in. And also they physically feel weird and bad yeah. sometimes. Yeah. And, okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, and the, and the thing is like we
2: keep as a, as a, as a species, human beings, yes. we keep doing these things throughout history. We we may lose some, they become outdated and they, they kind of fall away, but then we like seem to replace them with something that is seemingly just as unnatural and just as awkward. So like, even though I can't really connect with a lot of the rituals that you were talking about within the book, I feel as if there are so many things that we still do that could like, you could have just switched the examples in the book and it'd be the same thing, you know?
1: Cool. Oh, I'm glad.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, let's get into some of the content here. Can you l- just give me like, tell me like an overview of how the book is laid out? Because the thing that I was so impressed with is how short your book is, but also that it's only four chapters. I was like, this is amazing. This is so bold. <laughs> this is so awesome. I love this. So maybe just like say like what the what the layout of the text is for the listeners.
1: Cool. Yeah, I, w- I really want to hype the book's shortness because. I'm honestly insecure about it because I think so often we're like, look how long of a book I wrote.
2: Um, oh, no, I'm with you. 126 <laughs> pages. This is this is for me. This is my jam right here. I'm all over it.
1: I think this is the you know probably one of the few dissertation to book books where I took out chapters instead of added them. Um, so the structure of the book is that uh, I, I do try to kind of I mean I want to talk about this but like I try to make this a theory book. Like I want to introduce theoretical concepts that hopefully apply outside of American religion. Um, And then I track that within the American context after the American revolution, first with Freemasons, then with the American Bible society, which if anybody's ever been to an academic conference, that chapter is for you. That's what it's about. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And then a chapter on benevolence, which is about charity. Um, And I'm kind of playing with these ideas of the weird way in which when when we try to help people, we actually kind of pretend to be them. Mm -hmm. Um, And then finally, I talk about the the domestic sphere and Catherine Beecher and this kind of idea of the domestic queen um, and how uh, the home becomes another place where Americans work out what it means to be governed. Uh, Okay. The structure. Yeah. Wonderful. So let's
2: get into uh, this a little bit. So you have this very specific time period. 1790 to 1850 you open the book with george washington and the ritual initiations of the freemasons and i'm wondering what it is about this particular time period that you know sucked in your attention and let made you to like lead off like you know focus the whole entire book around this very specific 60 year period
1: well so the kind of Argument of the book that's like the historical argument, and I know, Greg, that you're a historian, so hopefully this resonates. Yeah, dodgy. <laughs> um, is that we said we had an American Revolution, then why the heck do we have all these rituals that are about hierarchy? Mm. So it's about the completeness of the American Revolution. So that's why it's set right after the American Revolution. Wonderful. And Freemasons in particular are, I think, a really useful place to think about this because. Um, they were powerful dudes who loved dressing up like kings and knights and priests. So yeah, which is
2: ironic because they fought against monarchy and those literally. types of things,
1: right? Right, right. and Freemasons like were very involved in the American Revolution, and so yeah, these are like these are revolu- revolutionary dudes who are cosplaying kingliness.
2: Essentially, that is so well stated. I absolutely love the way you just said that. I that's amazing.
1: Um, they also, I think. Um, are really crucial for the history of, like there's this super boring category that the that um, University of Chicago wouldn't let me put in the title, which is mm-hmm. civil society, which is actually really important for my argument. And civil society is this really capacious category of American life. It's like almost, it's like everything. It's like colleges, churches, nonprofits, um, advocacy advocacy organizations. It's all these things that are, where we like do society that mm-hmm. are not the government and are not um, like commerce, essentially. Sure. And there's power within those as well. And, th- and that's, a, that's, that's a big part of my book is thinking about how that's a big sphere in which we get bossed around in American life. And it's a sphere in which we both feel a lot of freedom because we're in charge of it. And it's also a place that we let people tell us what to do. So Freemasons are crucial to that history because they're like sort of the OG civil society. They mm-hmm. make up the notion that we're going to start a club for ourselves and it's sort of theoretically open to everyone except that we're going to have these super weird initiations where only some people get in, right? <laughs> so like it's it's contemporary and anal- now it, it, the, the current version of it is, is frats and sororities, yeah, right? Right, this very weird thing that we have on college campuses where people cosplay hierarchy and say that they're creating community, making this thing open to everybody. So uh, all that to say, Freemasons, I think, get us some really core ideas about what it means to belong in American society.
2: Mm. You know, something that's really fascinating about this is like whenever there is a group of powerful people... Sure, they have power, but that power has to feel powerful. And it also has to be sort of like viewed by the wider society as actually being power. Like you can see examples throughout history of a person uh, like maybe like a despot or a tyrant or something who was like overthrown where People used to see this person as an authority figure, but then stopped collectively seeing it that way and then led to the downfall. So in order to have that power, there has to be like the feeling. And you talk about Mm -hmm. the sensation of governance and how powerful people act in order to make their power feel real. Um, And I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit more about the idea of how governance happens behind closed doors dating back to the founding of the country to make the people outside the rituals, like believe in that power and, you know, feel that that power is real, even though it's occurring out of sight. Can you tell me a little bit more about that?
1: Cool. Yeah. So there's this kind of foundational theory of governing rituals that, um, is, is called sovereign ritual, which, um, I never know if it's Gertz or Gertz. um, but Clifford Geertz, he, he's, he, this is his kind of um, important contribution to this field. And, and his idea is that a king, in part, rules you by putting on a show, mm-hmm. but like dazzling you with their spectacle is part of how power yeah. becomes real, um, which I think is true. But I think in America, it's a little bit different where we also have all these rituals. Um, like, for example, when Freemasons are in their lodge and the doors are closed or when the college president and the board of trustees has their meeting, um, where the business of governance gets done, and in the United States we justify that by saying that either anyone could have joined if they wanted to, theoretically anybody could have been on the board of trustees, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, or we create like a a proof that something happened there, right? Like so I talk about minutes and the um, how ritual, uh, how minutes are a form of ritual. Um, but I think that what's really crucial to me is that all of these types of rituals behind closed doors do some level of hand-waving where they say nothing to see here. Don't worry. Like it's probably going on in some kind of equal way. There's probably some amount of shared governance. Don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that is a really important part of what it feels like to be an American is to kind of assume that there's some dumb democratic form of governance going on that you don't have to pay attention to.
2: Yeah. You know, um, I'm wondering what this uh, you mentioned cosplay and things like that earlier. And I want to know a little bit more about this because you have so much cool stuff in the book like photos of artifacts that were extremely fascinating, but I was looking at, and I was like, yeah, I don't really understand this. This is kind of, uh, something that I'm still wrapping my brain around. And you talk about like these, like, uh, mason aprons that are like artistically decorated and then there's like something that you talk about like drawn stages yeah. and i am so interested in the spectacle behind all of this um like what is like the dress and decor like and like why does that make them feel powerful and like what is the meaning behind all these things
1: cool yeah so this connects to your behind closed doors question because even though people are behind closed doors when they're governing in american civil society they feel a need to put on a show and um, for themselves, right? And and this is what Freemasons do. They have these aprons that are really beautiful objects that are made out of silk and they're embroidered with all of this um, Masonic legends and stories and, and symbols. Um, and, and part of what I argue is that the regalia of Freemasonry is really important because when you put it on, you can do all kinds of things. You can pretend to be a king in a, in a ritual. Um, but crucially, you always have the option of taking it off. Mm-hmm. So to me, the analogy here is like, you know, the kind of skull and bones idea of power where like, you know, boys can go do wild things in that secret ritual at Yale. <laughs> yeah. And the point is not that something transformative happens there. The point is that they can do wild things and then they can pretend that it never happened.
2: Mm, yes.
1: So it's that ability to put on essentially a costume and then take it off that makes these rituals powerful. But, and, and I think part, actually what's really important to me about that is that the feeling that gives those people is like embarrassment, right? Mm. If you feel like you have to take off your stupid, or not stupid, but your you know, sort of embarrassing outfit, in order to go then do the rest of your life. I think that shows that you don't think this is all sort of cohesive, that there's actually some sort of rupture between what you're doing inside and and how you're trying to behave outside. And To give you another example from our world, I think of this all the time with academic regalia. Oh yeah. Which I love, right? Like academic regalia, why why did I get a PhD? Probably to go buy that rope. At the same time, would I teach in that rope? Mm. No, I would feel so silly. Right. And it, and I think that's because the kind of pomp and hierarchy that it invokes in me is something that I cannot inhabit all the time within this context of purported equality.
2: Interesting. Well, and you also talk about in the book of how uh, like a lot of this uh, regalia, these aprons and things like that, the Masons would wear, they would wear out in public. And so they would like go around in the world like this. And that just seems really fascinating because it's kind of like, is like sort of like these secrecy, there's the secrecy behind these rituals, but then they're also out in public wearing it around. And I'm wondering if you can just elaborate on that a little bit for me, because I'm just like, why is this, why are they doing this? If it's supposed to be some kind of like ritual behind closed doors, et cetera.
1: Totally. Uh, That's a really important point because- they, they don't wear their aprons all the time, right? So for example, um, DeWitt Clinton is like the head of the Freemasons in New York. He's also at one point the mayor of, of New York City. He's also at another point, the governor of the state of New York. So he's a powerful dude. He doesn't wear his Masonic apron all the time, but when Masons go on a procession outside, they all wear their aprons. Mm-hmm. And I think this gets to this really important point that these societies are not truly secret secret, right? If nobody knew that it existed at all, it yeah. wouldn't be doing what it needs to be doing. <laughs> so it has to be just public enough that the people are aware that don't worry, the serious men are doing their serious business. We got it handled.
2: Speaking of the serious business, um, you you talk a little bit about like the choreography and like bodily contortions, um, of some of these like things. And this was highly amusing to me. And I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about like, what was actually happening in some of these like meetings where these rituals were taking place? Like, what are these like choreographic bodily contortions that are happening? And like, what do they look like?
1: Yeah. Masonic ritual is so cool. I mean, there's like, there's acting out of a story. So like you play this role and I play that role. Then there's, um, and, and I want to be clear, like this, a lot of this comes from exposés of Freemasons, but um, almost all historians of of Masons kind of use the exposés in part because we have nothing else, and also because there's some evidence to show that Masons themselves had to look at the exposés to remember how to do the choreography during the ritual because it's so mm-hmm. ornate. Oh yeah, um, they would tie up an initiate um, either in a cloth or in a rope. Um, and definitely there is evidence that they beat each other up. Mm. Um, and I talk about how that violence of the initiation, you know, which of course is so similar to hazing. Yeah. Um, it's very important to them that nobody gets that hurt. So that it just like the apron, it's something you can kind of pretend to do, do it very seriously, but you don't get anybody too hurt. And so you haven't crossed this threshold into like, being you know uncontrolled or being like those uncivilized people which shows why you get to be a powerful dude because you have the ability to to pretend and then stop
2: i see and then like the person who had that happen to them they can continue to feel that like pain or whatever later on so it's like a reminder of what happened to them so it's like almost like they, they like, carry this like new feeling with them after they've left that room so it's like it actually really happened you know does that make sense
1: sure um but also i think there's and, and i i actually do think that probably people got hurt and that you know some, the, i mean getting beat up is traumatic right so i bet yeah. there, people took things away from that um but i definitely think the ritual is intended to give the initiate sort of a whisper of of violence right that that you can have this happen to the surface of your body and then stop as opposed to like putting a wound in your body. Um,
0: Yeah. slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Gotcha. Okay. So,
2: you know, whenever we have like rituals and things like that, Mm -hmm. what I'm wondering about is, you know, I'm always thinking about how society is changing. Like as like a, you know, 38 year old parent, I'm thinking about what life will be like around in this country when my daughter is in like my age or a little older. So I'm always wondering how change happens and change tends to be super slow and i'm wondering if ritual that Mm. we inherit from generation to generation uh prevents any like changes that you were noticing if there was any examples that you see like where these kinds of like uh, attachments to ritual prevent change from happening um and like keep us stunted as a society i'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that
1: Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I mean, because part of what I'm arguing is that ritual is sort of conservative, That like, so one of the metaphors I use is that it's like the unfashionable, unfashionable furniture that you bring with you into your new home, right? Like your grandmother gives you this furniture and you have to like bring it with you and it looks sort of weird in your new house. Sure. And I don't think that prevents change. Like I think in fact, I'm showing a I I would argue that there's lots of change happening all the time, despite that, right? And it's just that the ritual creates an experience of dissonance as things are changing. Um, And this is why I don't call it ritual failure. I call it ritual awkwardness because it's not enough dissonance to like prevent anything or to, it just kind of makes things feel weird. So like another contemporary example I have of this kind of awkwardness is, um, you know that weird way in which politicians, when they're on the campaign, go and do like the eating of sandwiches and small. Sure.
2: <laughs> Absolutely.
1: And it's like so weird, right? And they're like pretending to be normal Joe Schmo. Yeah, it's sandwich.
2: It, and I, every time I see it, I'm like, well, this is the most fraudulent um ruse imaginable like i cuz you never believe it cuz like they'll be like eating a hot dog and then they'll make like some insane face like wow that's the most amazing thing i've ever had and so it's just like so it's just play and acting and exactly. you, you can see it every single time but yet they continue to do it every two years when they're over whenever there's a camera pointed so i i understand for sure
1: yeah and that's and that's exactly what i'm getting at is that I don't think they even think that they're coming off as plausible. Yeah. And yet their sense of confidence that they are powerful enough to like do this weird, awkward thing and then move on from it. It just makes it keep happening and happening and happening. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not arguing that ritual stunts us. I just think it kind of, it becomes a way for us to see this weird, this weird way in which some people can, can kind of pull off these weird um, plays. I mean, they, I, I am getting at the way in which ritual is a moment of as if. Um, mm-hmm. and, and this is a big argument within ritual studies. I mean, I think a lot of r- ritual studies has argued that ritual is not like is not like theater. Um, and I want to call attention to the way in which sometimes ritual really is about putting on something temporary that does not transform you entirely and then you get to walk away from it
2: okay cool so i got a couple more questions on masons because i just (laughs) i just i can't stop um i'm wondering uh about you know pop culture depictions of masons um like if you have any like favorite depictions or least favorite depictions, because we hear about these, these groups of people like growing up in the U S like we learn about them in various ways. And then they're depicted in certain ways within the media that we consume. And I'm wondering if you, who have a you have a, a much deeper fascination with this group. I'm wondering if you have any personal favorites or least favorites that have maybe been helpful or detrimental in our understanding of this group as, you know, a, a historical group that matters to the country in general.
1: Yeah. It's cool cuz I was just teaching uh Freemasons to my students and like there is this inherent interest in Freemasons which I think comes from a national treasure and mm-hmm. like <laughs> that kind of understanding. Um and also the fact that a lot of people have parents or grandparents that were Freemasons. So like the first thing I always try to clarify is if your grandfather was a Freemason and he's some working class dude, I'm not impugning his honor, right? Like there's this major transition that happens in the history of Freemasons where right after the revolution, they're powerful dudes. And then they have this big fall from grace. And then in the late 20th, sorry, in the late 19th century, early 20th century, it becomes this really important association for working class, um, in particular, like eth- you know, ethnic American groups um, really participate heavily. Um, but what's I think important about the national treasure and the kind of secret cabal sense of conspiracy is that actually like, I encourage that. I think there are secret cabals in American life, right? Like there actually are places where people are leading us behind closed doors um, without much transparency at all. I just think it's like the most banal book. It, it's not as, the cabal is, is happening and yet also is not as exciting as we want it to
0: be.
2: <laughs> I understand. Well, and you know, something else I'm super curious about is like your experiences as a researcher because um, yeah. you include all these amazing artifacts and I'm wondering about any like travel or places you went to. Like you talk about the Scottish Rite Masonic Museum a whole bunch and I'm wondering if you just have any like places or things that you did that were like really amazing as like, you know, when you're just going through the research process in general and anything that yeah. stands out to you from those times?
1: Well, so first of all, um, sorry, I just want to add one thing to the pop culture thing. Oh, sure. Is, sorry. No. Um, my favorite pop culture depiction of Freemasonry is in a TV show called Queen Sugar, um, which is um, on the OWN network, the Oprah network. And it's... okay. It's, totally beautiful it's um it's about this like fa- this black family um that's kind of dealing with the legacy of agriculture outside of new orleans and it has this incredible scene of prince hall freemasonry during a funeral and i think a lot of white americans are not familiar with black freemasonry which is called prince hall freemasonry and it starts at the same time as as white freemasonry or it happens right after the revolution so okay so it's it's unbelievably early. Um, and one of the things I'm trying to show in the book is that there's all kinds of forms of, of fraternity and civil society that are not about white people governing the rest of society. Um, and if anybody has any interest in Freemasonry, I highly encourage you to learn more about Prince Hall Freemasonry, because it's, it's really, it's like all of this spectacular ritual, um, but channeled into totally radical, interesting forms of power. Very but cool. Yeah, to to your question of uh, archives and and looking at Freemasonry, um, I mean, it's just the most wonderful bonkers material culture. And uh, if anybody's ever in New York City, my suggestion is the, what's it called? The Chancellor um, Robert Livingston Masonic uh, Library of the Grand Lodge. Crazy title. It's essentially the Grand Lodge of New York City. um, And... The reason it's such a wonderful place to visit is that you actually get to see inside a lodge, Mm. which is an incredible piece of architecture. Um, And the secret is uh, anybody can go inside now. They've opened up both the archives and the museum, which did not previously used to be true of, of um, Masons. Uh, But you have to make an appointment and it's just because they're really short staffed, but they're so, in, in fact, they're sort of, they're always excited to have people who aren't Masons because that's usually the only people who, want to come see it um, but you know they have the aprons which are absolutely wonderful and almost all masonic material culture is just luscious so highly recommend that
2: very cool yeah. um you know there's something else that jumps out at me from the book is the way that corporations come into the discussion and I'm wondering how the corporate matters within the context of this book. And yeah. then if there's any connections with the corporate to today as well. I'm just like, I thought that was really fascinating um, piece of detail within the text.
1: Yeah, thank you. Uh, yes. Um, so I've been talking about civil society, which includes clubs and colleges and nonprofits. And I think that there's a big misconception, which is that corporations are only about uh, um, Commerce. We, mm-hmm. we think when we hear the word corporation, we think commerce. Um, corporations are are all the the nonprofits too, um, and it's been a crucial move within religious studies to recognize how absolutely important this category is for what religion looks like um, in both the early modern period and in contemporary. Uh, not just the United States. I mean, Julian. I know you know him. He's yeah, in Japan. Um, So part of what a corporation is, is an intermediary between a sovereign, like a king, and the normal people. It's like this weird form where um, there's this group of people who essentially get to tell society what to do, um, but they're not the government. And that's something I really try to call attention to because, um, you know, we think of like corporate culture for like a corporation like Walmart and corporate culture is a whole bunch of rituals, right? It's like how the greeter at the door at Walmart is supposed to address people. Um, corporations that are not uh, selling you stuff like, you know, the red cross or any kind of nonprofit, including a university also have a culture of how they run that relies on rituals. And so that is absolutely part of the genesis of this book is to try to create ways to talk about um, corporate culture and its ritual forms um, in spaces that I think people are not used to seeing it. Like the (laughs) AAR.
2: I love it. Well, uh, you know, you mentioned Catherine Bell earlier and like whenever I I talk to people who have, you know, specific areas of interest, I'm always curious what scholars inspire them. And so I'm wondering if you have any uh, ritual theorists Authors, you know, intellectuals, people that you like, kind of look up to as sort of like a a thought leader in the fields that you that you work in, that you wanted to shout out, or any texts that you wanted to recommend to listeners out there, anything at all that springs to mind off top of your head?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, one that's like absolutely at the core of this book, and he's he blurb's the back of the book too, is Joseph Roach, who's he's actually not a religious studies guy; he's a performance studies guy. but the reason I'm obsessed with him and o- have always been obsessed with him is that he's very interested in this question of change over time. So like, how does a performance that happened 200 years um, make its way into the present? And he um, very provocatively shows this through the idea of like a, a ritual. It, it, it's like a form of ghosting that like mm-hmm. a, a person 50 years later, I'll, like, you know, for, here's a really classic Joseph Roach example. Justin Bieber doing a little kind of Elvis Presley. Yeah, He's like like literally got the ghost of Elvis Presley in him. Mm. And um, I have a different way of talking about ritual, but but Joseph Roach definitely, I think he made me feel excited about talking about ritual historically. And I think that there is, I mean, I'm just gonna, this is like sort of my personality is that I like to throw provocations then invite people to come at me so we can have more of a discussion. Sure. A lot of ritual studies that comes out of Catherine Bell and then sort of comes through um, Ronald Grimes as sort of an inheritor of her work in some ways, um, is very interested in like an anthropological present where you're just seeing something in a frozen moment as opposed to kind of understanding ritual as part of historical change or not change, but in any sense, kind of like a, a wider frame Um, So I think Joseph Roach's work really invites us to think about ritual over like a 300 year period or 500 year period or that kind of thing.
2: Wonderful. You know, just in general about this book, uh, I I read your acknowledgement section. Um, I tend to do that. And in the acknowledgement section, you write about learning about your own writing ticks, which I thought was really fascinating because like, I'm always wondering about like, The process behind the scenes of getting us these like shiny, like well manicured products that we get, like whenever we see a finished book. But there's so much that goes into that. And I'm wondering, like, about your own process and what you learned about yourself in putting together this book.
1: Mm. Yeah. So, like, first of all, for any graduate students who are on this journey, no editor is going to come swoop in at the end and do this for you. It's your friends. Only your friends will. Do. This is just like it's such hard labor that you're yeah. the other ones willing to do it. Um you know, for example, like I put I, I, I'm so bad at grammar that I don't even know how to say it, but like if you have two clauses, I'll put the, the last clause before the first clause like a bazillion times in the same sure. paragraph. <laughs> <laughs> um but also. I have all kinds of, I think it once again comes from. I, I grew up in like, I, I went to like Waldorf schools, which are these theosophist schools. And so I'm like very poorly educated in basic uh, kind of English grammar stuff. Uh, so I love things like overuse of italics and overuse of exclamation marks. And one of the things that I've come to embrace about myself is that's just how I sound. Mm-hmm. And I want my, Writing to reflect the way I feel in person, um, and I sort of wish other people did that more too.
2: Any reflections on being a part of the fabulous Class Two Hundred series from the University of Chicago Press?
1: Yes, I mean, in relationship to my overuse of exclamation points and italicization, I think they are absolutely at the forefront of helping people develop style and. Uh, write in a way that feels both kind of distinctive to you as a scholar and slightly new. Um, but the thing that I love about Class 200 the most is that I think that they're developing a list of books that a religious studies department could read together. Because religious studies is so weird, right? You have this person who does ancient Christianity and contemporary Buddhism. And and like theoretically, you actually don't have that much overlap in your interests. And so what are the core ideas of religious studies that bring us together in a conversation? And I think Class 200 is thinking about what those are. They're the secular, they're things like um, you know ritual, like ritual is like a, an incredibly yeah. old fashioned uh, religious studies topic that in fact, we all have to confront. Um, and so I think that they're really generating a list of books that will allow us to talk between our subfields and thus become better friends and better scholars
2: you know i'm looking at the the front cover right now and i would hate myself if i didn't ask you about this but i'm wondering if you can tell me about the cover and the design here because there's there's some interesting detail here and i'm looking at the back cover talking about the cover illustration and i'm wondering if you have any thoughts on the front cover because it's so cool
1: So the image is of this like weird stick figure, and it's actually, it's an anti-Masonic image. It's a image um, that was making fun of Masons. And what it's saying is like, Masons are these, they're doing these weird actions that are very wooden. Mm -hmm. Um, And that gets like to the heart of what I mean by awkward, right? Awkward is um, when you are doing something and you're kind of being, um, you're being a tryhard right like so so like when you try to be fancy and you pick up a teacup and your little finger comes out right what's important about that is that you are you are both trying to do something in a kind of stylized way and it's supposed to look like you're trying this is like the central argument about the origins of civility that it's about not just doing the right bow and holding the right fork but demonstrating kind of that you are putting on a show for others um, and so that's part of what I mean by awkward is that there's always kind of the sense of like, are people watching me? And also I'm having to put my body in these weird um, positions. Yeah. And then on top of that, I have the, 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 the book uh, designer very smartly put the text in such a way that you have to crane your head. And I'm, as- it's so cool. That makes it awkward. <laughs> exactly. It's wonder.
2: Oh, that's so thoughtful, you know? And I think that really, um, that really ties this, this back to the beginning. That's kind of like a nice circular ending for the conversation where, you know, we, we can think about the ways that people put on a show for each other to this day. This no. is such a human thing to do. It exists across history, across centuries. We can observe it across, you know, so many periods of time, many different places around the world and it's just like this this tendency that ties us all together as a species it kind of almost doesn't even really matter what continent you're on there's like a form of this that i feel could be like looked at um almost anywhere you know
1: and i like my greatest dream, hope and dream for this book is that i get to talk to somebody about what awkwardness feels like in 500 500- you know, BC somewhere. And, and I, and I hope that that's a sensation that we can kind of talk about together.
2: I love it. Well, Dr. Dana Logan, I have absolutely loved this conversation about awkward rituals, sensations of governance in Protestant America. I'm wondering if you can uh, direct the listeners to any links or ways to connect with you that you, uh, that you would like to put out there.
1: Yeah, you can find me on Twitter. I'm pop apologist tell that comes from my pre-academic days. I love um, it. i pop-apologist.
2: <laughs> I love it. Well, Dana Logan, thank you so much for joining me. I have had a real blast.
1: Thank you, Greg. This was awesome.